2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Brazilii, the Maholvite. And he gave into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen from the public square of Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we have already prayed together as a congregation today about your word, it's with eagerness and with openness of heart that we now attend to your word. God, we again just want to say thank you so much for the gift of the scriptures, which communicate the truth of the gospel to us and In so doing, they lead us to life and eternal life. So God, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that as we've seen through our studies here in the books of Samuel, that every single text in the Bible ultimately tells us and points us to the big story of the Bible, your redemption of your people through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Father, we pray now, even as we read and consider and study together, 2 Samuel 21, and events that happened some 3,000 years ago. God, would you once again just lead our hearts and our minds to the good news of the gospel? Would you help us to see here how even this story, with all of its gore and all of its shock, ultimately points us to Christ? So God, bless us now in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. We should begin by getting ourselves oriented here in the book of 2 Samuel. In the last nine chapters of this book, King David has been dealing with the consequences of his own sin. David, back in chapter 11, made a horrible decision that altered the trajectory of his life. He decided that he would commit adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. She got pregnant and in an effort to cover his own tracks, he ended up ultimately having her husband, a man named Uriah, murdered. So now he's an adulterer and he's a murderer. 
In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan was sent to confront King David and to jar him out of his lethargy about his sin. And in doing so, he announced to King David that the Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die, which was the penalty in Israel for adultery and murder. You're not going to die. The Lord has put away your sin from you, but there are going to be serious consequences and ramifications. The sword will not depart from your house, Nathan told him. One from within your own family will rise up against you. And these events came to pass. And so in these previous nine chapters before chapter 21, David is, is experiencing all of the fallout from his own sin. And it's been gnarly and it's been heavy. But something changes here in chapter 21 because now David in this chapter is forced to deal with the consequences of somebody else's sin, the sin of his predecessor, King Saul. And all of us in our own lives experience what David has experienced. In a lot of, in a lot of ways, we do have to endure and deal with the consequences from our own sins. There are decisions that we make that violate our own conscience and they violate the word of God and they go against God's word and God's commandments that are meant to give us life and we rebel against that and go against that and there's consequences and there's ramifications and we find that a lot of our life is lived dealing with those consequences and trying to repair things that we've destroyed. But it's also true that in all of our lives we have certain chapters of our lives in which we are suffering the consequences and having to navigate through new challenges in our lives that have come to us not on account of something we did, not because of your own sin, but because of the sins of somebody else that are now impacting you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't sign up for this. And yet you find yourself being affected by the sins of somebody else. And so today we're going to see the effect of Saul's sin. We're going to see how it impacts David and Saul's family and the whole nation of Israel. And it's a dark time for the nation of Israel, but there's light at the end of the tunnel and there's hope in this story. Our story begins at an unspecified time in David's reign. And it begins with a three-year famine that has been consuming the land of Israel. So there have been three years now where the, the, the farmers have gone out and they've sowed their seed and they've tilled up the soil. They've done everything that they can do. They've done their work and yet the heavens have been shut up and there's been no rain and there's been little to no food produced year after year after year here. And the people are miserable. Likely the death toll is piling up from starvation or secondary causes. And so right at the outset here, we, we, in verse 1, are being introduced to the first theme of this story, which is the theme of sin and judgment. It's right there in verses 1 and 2. The judgment, again, is coming in the form of this three years long famine. This is a national emergency in Israel. Things are horrible. The people are suffering and they're starving. And so David, their king seeks the Lord on behalf of the nation. He's like, I, we've got to sort this out. We've got to figure this out. We need help. And he goes to the Lord. And he seeks the Lord. Let's look at verse 1 and see all of these things together. It says this again. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said... There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So notice with me that the famine that, that has struck the nation of Israel is not just some random act of nature. God explains to King David when he seeks the Lord about this famine, he explains that it's actually the result of sin. Again, the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Whoa. 
There is guilt, God says, on Israel's first king, King Saul, and on his house, meaning on his entire family. And where is this guilt coming from? Well, it's blood guilt, meaning guilt from the shedding of innocent blood. And God reminds David, no, 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 Saul struck down the Gibeonites. Now, we're introduced to these people, the Gibeonites, back in the book of Joshua. When, when Joshua led God's people, the nation of Israel, into the promised land, God called Joshua to drive out all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Because this was their land that God had given to them. And so they go into the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership and they start defeating their enemies and they're consuming their enemies and they're driving their enemies from the land just like God had promised them. And the Gibeonites hear about this and they're witnessing this and they become afraid. They, they think to themselves, we're probably next. They're going to come and consume us. And so what they do is they deceive Joshua into making a covenant with them. They go, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to dress ourselves and our animals up like we have come on a very long journey. And, and so they put on these worn out clothes and worn out sandals and they put worn out sacks on their donkeys and they come in just haggard and dirty and dusty and they come to Joshua and they tell Joshua that they're from a land that is far outside of the promised land, far outside of the scope of Joshua's conquest and they ask if Joshua will make a covenant with them. Now the reality is they came from about a couple miles north of Jerusalem. I mean, they're right in the heart of the promised land, but they deceive Joshua and Joshua and the, the leaders of Israel make a covenant with them that says that we will do you no harm. This is what's being referred to in verse two. If you look at verse two, it says, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. It's a reference back to this covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. So, so all of a sudden, even though they were deceived, the people of Israel realized we made this covenant before the Lord. We have to honor it and they spare the Gibeonites. And it's supposed to be a perpetual covenant. And the Gibeonites are living in the land from that day forward. So with this generations long covenant standing between Israel and the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites believed that they had peace. But Saul, the first king of Israel, completely violates this covenant. And he goes and he strikes down the Gideonites. He massacres many of the Gibeonites. Now, the event of it is not recorded for us in Scripture. It's not, we don't hear this story told for us in 1 Samuel. But we do know that it was horrendous because the language of verse 5 that they used to describe it shows us how horrendous it is. Look at verse 5. These Gibeonites say the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Saul was committing massacre. He was trying to wipe these people out of the land of Israel. And this event and this breaking of a covenant and murdering a bunch of innocent people is where this blood guilt is stemming from that has brought about the famine in the land. Stop and think about that. The sins of this man, Saul, Israel's first king, didn't just affect him. And it didn't just affect his family, as so often our sin does. His sin directly affected the entire nation of God's people through famine. And while our sin likely won't have such far-reaching ramifications, the underlying point applies to every one of us. All sin brings God's judgment. And as we are painfully aware of, much of that judgment shows up in our earthly lives, just like it did for Israel. It was a real famine, a real crisis that they really had to endure. And as I've already mentioned, a lot of the sin that we commit in our lives, it, the consequences of it are, are felt and experienced right here in our lives. But we've got to understand that any and all temporal judgment that we might experience in our lives is meant to point us to the great judgment that every sinner will face. 
The day that we will all stand before God, before his judgment seat, and either be granted access to heaven or be condemned to hell. The Bible clearly teaches us that sin brings God's judgment. Romans 1.18 famously puts it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, famine, incidentally, is a really great picture of judgment. I mean, think about famine. Probably none of us in this room have ever experienced a long-term famine, but think about it. Famine brings pain. Famine brings decay. Famine brings death to people. When people are experiencing severe famine, years-long famine, It removes all of the good and the beautiful and the enjoyable things from life. I mean, when people are without food, when you are physically starving, your entire experience is colored by misery. It's horrendous. It's unthinkable. It's horrible. And eternal judgment will be like that. It'll be similar to famine. It's called the second death. It is in the truest sense, friends, The removal of all that is good and beautiful and delightful in your life right now. It is complete misery through being separated from the goodness of God. So David here, as as this chapter begins, finds himself in a terrible position. He is the leader of God's people. He's responsible to care for them. And yet they are under the judgment of Almighty God for sins that his predecessor committed decades before. And his response to this crisis leads us to the next theme in this text, which is atonement and sacrifice in verses 3 through 9. David, as Israel's new representative head, takes personal responsibility to address this sin. Look at verse 3. David asks these Gibeonites, he says, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement? David did not commit the sin against the Gibeonites. But again, David, as Israel's new representative head, sees it as his personal responsibility to correct the wrong, to make things right. How Can I make atonement? What shall I do for you? He asks. And notice, we'll keep the verse on the screen here, that he sees his actions, whatever he does here, he sees his actions as producing blessing, not just for himself, but for the whole nation. It says that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. This is powerful. David, as Israel's new representative head, steps in to make atonement for the failures of Israel's first representative head, a man named King Saul. See, in this moment, Saul represents a type of Adam, our first parent from the book of Genesis. Just as Saul represented the entire nation and his sin affected all of the people, the scriptures teach us that Adam represented the whole human race. And his sin in the garden affected every single son or daughter of Adam to ever be born. See, in this story, Saul's guilt became all of their guilt and they all bore the consequences, which was impending death from famine. Adam's guilt, according to the Bible, became all of our guilt. And every single one of us are bearing the consequences of his sin, which is impending death and judgment before a holy God. The Apostle Paul makes this exact connection in Romans chapter 5. I won't read the whole passage, but I would commend it to your reading later. Here's Romans 5.12, though. He says this, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who he's already explained is Adam, our representative head. He says, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin and death came through Adam and his sin, and it has spread to all of us as his children. But as Saul represents Adam, 
David in 2 Samuel 21 represents Jesus Christ. David becomes Israel's new representative head and he steps in to make atonement for the failures of Saul. And so it is with Jesus. Here's Romans 5.17. Paul's argument continues. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, again, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Two verses later, Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Amazing. In Christ, we have a new representative head. Jesus became man for our salvation. He became like us in every regard except for sin so that he could stand before God and represent us rightly and he could bring atonement through his death on the cross for our sins. He, like David, is stepping in and Jesus intercedes for the people of God. So what can this king, David, do to atone for the sin against the Gibeonites? Well, they tell him in verses 5 and 6, look again at your Bible, please, verse 5. They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Wow. Wow. The Gibeonites demand justice here. They demand an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. King Saul had killed their sons. And now they say, what will make this right? The death of his sons. Now, this does not mean that Saul only killed seven Gibeonites. He massacred these people as we already talked about. But seven is the number of completion or perfection. And so in demanding seven of Saul's offspring, they're asking for a representation of all of their kinsmen who were killed by this massacring king. These seven will represent the complete number or the whole number of the slaughtered Gibeonites. And David understands that. And King David agrees to the terms. And we need to pay attention to how this episode upholds a basic moral principle. Namely that justice demands atonement. Justice demands atonement. David knows that. He asks them in verse 3, what can I do to make atonement? We, we need to offer you something. There needs to be some sort of a sacrifice to make right the wrong that was done to you people. And in order for things to be made right between Israel and the Gibeonites, an atoning sacrifice has to be offered. Saul slaughtered their sons. And now only the death of Saul's sons can make things right. Now, theoretically, the Gibeonites could have just not demanded anything from Saul. They could have just lived and let live. They could have put this behind them. They could have just let it all go. And if they had done that, their their actions would have been commendable because they were showing incredible grace and mercy. But they would not have been upholding justice. A grave injustice had been done and they would have just let that continue on indefinitely. So what they cry out for is justice. And David grants it to them. He agrees at the end of verse 6 there. Now verse 7 begins to tell the story of David giving them what they demanded. The seven sons or offspring of the house of Saul. But it starts by telling us who David was not willing to give up to the Gibeonites. Look at verse 7 again. So right after the king says to them, I will give them, the author says, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. And here's the reason why. Because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between Saul, or between David rather, and Jonathan, 
the son of Saul. Now, we've all met Mephibosheth several times now in the story of 2 Samuel. Mephibosheth was the crippled son of Jonathan, who was King Saul's son and was the crown prince of Israel while King Saul was alive. Jonathan was next in line. And Jonathan and David became best friends. And when Jonathan realized David would someday become king, Jonathan said, make a covenant with me. Promise to me before the Lord that when you become king, you will show God's kindness or God's said to me and to my family. And this makes a lot of sense because in these cultures, whenever a new dynasty would be established, kind of the first thing to do on day one was let's go kill all the old family members. Let's go kill off all potential heirs to the throne. And so that's what normally happened. And Jonathan is saying, don't let that happen here. We're best friends. And I love you and my heart is with you and I support you. So when God makes you King David, swear to me before the Lord that you will show God's kindness, God's said to me and my family. And David swore and he made a covenant with his friend Jonathan. And so when David's friend Jonathan died in battle with his dad Saul and David became king, one of the things that we saw earlier in the book of Samuel is David proactively sought out descendants of Saul that he could show God's kindness to. And he became aware of this son of Jonathan, named Mephibosheth, who was lame in his feet. And he rescued him and he brought him, instead of killing him, he brought him into his house. He set him at his table. He gave him great riches. He treated him like a son to honor the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. This man, Mephibosheth, was arguably more qualified than any other descendant of Saul to be one of the seven who would be executed. Because again, his father was Jonathan, meaning his father was the crown prince. Mephibosheth was probably then directly in line as a potential heir for Saul's throne. He was a perfect candidate to say he could be one of the seven. That's That's how we get justice. That's how we get things right. And yet David here will not hand him over. He refuses, and it's on the grounds of the covenant he made with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Now, interestingly, the foundational sin here in chapter 21 that brought about God's judgment and brought about this famine was the violation of a covenant. Saul ignored the covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites, and he struck them down. And here is David now trying to rectify that broken covenant and he is not about to violate another one. He is going to honor the covenant that he made to Jonathan. Just because some new extenuating circumstances are presenting themselves, that's not going to cause David to change what he has already vowed to do. He promised Jonathan and he promised Mephibosheth that he would care for him. And this is such a powerful reminder. I love this part of the story because just as David will not go back on his covenant, despite extenuating circumstances, changes that that could have tempted him to go back, he will not go back and neither will God ever go back on his covenant that he has made with his people. Now sometimes even the best Christians who have the best theology are going through seasons of life, oftentimes as a result of their own sin, where at the level of our heart, we do begin to doubt and wonder and question, will God change his mind about me? Yeah, 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 I know know the Bible says God loves me. I know the Bible says that God's committed to me. I know that the Bible says it's not about my own righteousness anyway, but come on, look what I've done. Or look what I've said, or look what I think, or how I feel. This is, this is horrible. This is so bad. Are you sure God really does love me, that he's really for me, that he's not going to revoke his love, that he won't just reject me, that he's not going to change his mind about me? And we can feel that at, time, at times in our lives. But we need to be reminded, and David is a great reminder here, through his faithfulness to Jonathan and Mephibosheth, that friend, if you're in Christ by faith, then that means that when God looks at you, he does not see your sin and he actually sees Christ's righteousness. 
I mean, the, the, the sin that you commit is real and there are consequences, but guess what? That sin was paid for in full 2,000 years ago when Christ hung on the cross. The sin was atoned for, so there's no longer a need for further atonement. And so we can trust and we can believe that God cannot change his mind about us. To do so would be an injustice against us because justice has already been satisfied. Christ paid the cost for our sin. And so no matter what changes, what new extenuating circumstances present themselves in your life or mine, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that he loves us, that he is for us, that he is committed to us, that he will never, ever, ever change his mind about those that he has chosen. And so David here, as a picture of Christ, extends mercy to Mephibosheth. But in doing so, and this is really heavy, seven other descendants of Saul had to die, including, interestingly enough, another Mephibosheth. Look at verse 8. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, notice there are two things happening here in verses 7 through 9. David here is administering both mercy and justice. Mercy to Mephibosheth and justice for the Gibeonites through the death of these seven men. Notice that it's not mercy at the expense of justice. Again, had the Gibeonites just moved on, said, well, we're not going to require any sort of atonement, that would have been mercy being extended to the household of Saul, but it would not have been justice. And here in this moment, there is mercy and justice at play, but it's never mercy at the expense of justice. In order for David to show Mephibosheth mercy, somebody else had to die. And that somebody else had to be somebody who could represent Mephibosheth. They had to be a descendant of Saul to be qualified here to be a substitute for this man Mephibosheth. And what a vivid picture we have of the gospel here. Because the scriptures teach us that in order for God to show any of us mercy, somebody else had to die. And it actually couldn't just be anybody else. It had to be somebody who could, in fact, represent us. A flesh and blood human who had experienced all that you and I experience living life under the sun. We needed a substitute like that. And that's why 2,000 years ago, God became man. He took on human flesh, a human nature. He was a real person. And Jesus did all of that for our salvation. So that Jesus truly could represent us. He truly could become the second Adam. And although our first representative head failed and he led us into sin and death, we had a new representative head for all of humanity who would lead us into life and blessing with God. It's amazing. Jesus stepped up. He volunteered. We don't read anything here about one of the seven going, you know what, I'll I'll, I'll die. I'll take the place of that guy, Mephibosheth, my cousin, or whatever their relationship would have been. Don't let him die. I'll step up in his place. We don't read anything like that. But we know from the scriptures that Jesus, driven by love, volunteered. And Jesus himself was very clear. Nobody's putting me to death. That's not happening. I could get out of this if I want to, but I'm willing to to lay down my life and die for you because I love you because you're my people. And he did. And he died on that cross 2,000 years ago so that you could go free and I could go free. It's amazing. 
So here this man, Mephibosheth, goes free. And simultaneously, the demands of the Gibeonites are met. Seven sons of Saul have perished. They were hung before the Lord. But the story's not quite finished there, is it? Look at verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Verse 10 begins to introduce us to some new themes in this chapter. It's covered through verses 10 through 14, and I would describe it this way, the ugliness of sin and the best we can do. The ugliness of sin and the best we can do. These seven men have died now, we read, a very shameful death. It was a public death. They were hanged in front of the Gibeonites. And not only that, they weren't given a proper burial. They're just left out there in a field by a rock exposed to all of the elements. And so this was adding insult to injury. They're being desecrated, really, their bodies. It's a completely shameful way for them to perish in the land of Israel. The honorable way to take care of your family and the dead would be to give them a proper burial. They experience none of this. And so one of their mothers, this woman Rizpah, she does what she can do to try to minimize the shame that her children are exposed to. She spreads sackcloth for herself, we read, on the rock, meaning she, she laid down a blanket either to sit on or, or she spread sackcloth perhaps as a, a shade structure to sit under in the heat of Israel as she basically carried on a vigil for the dead here and tended to the bodies both day and night, shooing away the birds that would come and peck at the dead bodies of her own children. In the evening, standing guard so that wild beasts don't come and attack the bodies and the corpses of her children. She's powerless to bury them properly. And all she can do is try to honor them in this way. It's a horrific scene. And we're told in verse 7 that they were put to death at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, barley harvest was in April. And then we're told that, that this is going on here until the rains came and fell. We don't know exactly what's referred to there, but it's possible that that's referring to the rains that come usually in late summer or beginning of the fall that produce the harvest. Summertime is very dry in Israel, as it is in Southern California. It's possible then that this is a months-long vigil that Rizpah is carrying on. She's there day and night, around the clock, mourning and grieving and trying to care for her children. It's, it's a gut-wrenching, it's an agonizing scene, especially if you're a parent. But her grief and her suffering is such a powerful reminder to all of us of the ugliness of sin. What we're watching here, as we've already mentioned, is the ongoing effects of Saul's sin that occurred, listen, decades before this experience. I've heard the illustration of sin being like a nuclear bomb before. And I think that's a helpful illustration when you really come to understand how impactful sin can be. Because when a nuclear bomb drops, you have obviously the initial impact of that nuclear bomb, which is to completely decimate the entire city for miles and miles and miles. I mean, it just levels everything. Every building, every tree, it's just completely leveled. But then there's the ongoing impact through radiation from that nuclear explosion that affects that area for generations to come. It's an ongoing effect that just goes on and on and on. And this is what sin can be like. Sin has ongoing ramifications that can ripple out into the lives of other people and into even generations to come. This poor mother is grief-stricken. This poor mother has had her entire life just upended. And it will never, ever be the same again because of the sin of her family member, Saul, from decades earlier. And it really should serve as a warning to all of us. All of us are still here on this earth. We still have days ahead of us. 
And that means that every one of us is going to be presented with so many opportunities to yield to temptation. And the enemy is going to try to lie to us and say, it's not that big of a deal. It's not going to affect you. Oh, you're already covered by grace. Don't worry about it. And he has all these deceptive little tricks to try to get us to just minimize sin, to feel like it's not going to really affect us. And you know what? In God's grace, so much of our sin doesn't affect us to the extent that it could. But far be it from us to be a people that presume on the grace of God and have to learn the hard way where God says, you know what, in this instance, there's going to be some serious ongoing consequences that you're going to endure. No, no, no. God would plead with his children and just say to us, just don't go that way. Just trust me when I tell you that sin leads to destruction and misery and pain and heartache. And if you continue in it to death, Whereas righteousness leads to peace and joy and blessing, choose that. Just choose life. May we be wise. May we trust the Lord and lean into his promises. Now the scene ends here with David hearing about Rizpah, hearing about this tragic scene with this mom. And then he steps in to make every effort to make things right. Look at verse 11. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. David here will not leave the house of Saul in utter disgrace. He collects the bones of these seven young men. And he, deter- he determines, we're going to give them a proper burial. He also collects the bones of Saul and Jonathan. Who The backstory on that is briefly told to us there, but when they died in battle, the Philistines took the king and the crown prince's bodies. They publicly hung them in their own city to mock them and disgrace them. And some Israelites from the town of Jabesh-Gilead said, no, 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 we're not going to let that happen. And some valiant men rose up and they did a midnight raid into that Philistine city. They recovered the bodies of their fallen king and crown prince. They took them back to Jabesh and they burned them there and they buried their bones. So David here says, we're going to take the the bones of these seven sons and grandsons of Saul, but I'm also going to take Saul and Jonathan's bones, and we're going to gather them all together, and we're going to take them back to their hometown and bury them in their family tomb, in the family tomb of Kish, Saul's father. And so David here does what he can to honor this family. He does what he can to help these grieving women and these grieving families by removing the disgrace from their sons and bestowing greater on the whole household by giving them these proper burials among their relatives. And yet, I bet most of you feel here the way that I feel. Yes, David did something kind. He did something commendable. But it hardly makes things right. I mean, it feels totally inadequate to to address the suffering that these women are enduring. But when you stop and think about it, it's the best that he can do. And that's really sad to think about. This is the best that he can do. I mean, when you really stop and think about it, only God at the resurrection has the power to make things right for these women and for their families. This is the best that David can do. And this is just another aspect of the ugliness of sin. In the aftermath of the sins that we commit, There is an inadequacy that we feel oftentimes. I I can't ever go back and make this perfectly right again. So what am I left with? Well, this is the best that I can do. Or the sins that have been committed against us. All the sorries in the world for certain sins don't seem to make things better or make things go back and, and make things ultimately right. It's just the best that we can do. And as long as we're on this earth, we're stuck in that predicament. When it comes to our sin, we are not powerful enough to fix our sin on our own. And so the best we can do is patch things up with band-aids and put all of our hope in the resurrection. Because friends, it is only God 
at the resurrection who can truly make everything right again. And here's the great promise of the gospel. For those of us who trust in his son, Jesus, he will do it. All of those temporary band-aids that we're putting on, or we're putting on other situations and other people, God will ultimately heal. And that's why as Christians, we do have the resources to move forward in hope, despite living in a world full of sin and suffering and loss. Now, the final line here reads this, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Translation, God lifted the famine. Rain came, a harvest happened, God responded to their, to their plea. And so this brings us to the final theme, which is blessings restored. While Saul's sin was left undealt with, there was judgment, there was pain, there was misery, and there's death. Once the sin is atoned for and it's dealt with, there is blessing, there is life, there is food, there is abundance. And so in closing, I wonder if there might be some here today that find yourself desperate for God's blessing. Maybe you feel like your life is better described by famine than it is by blessing. It's dry, it's, it's destitute, it's unsatisfying. Friend, what you're feeling right now is only a foretaste of what you'll feel and experience in eternity if you just continue down the same path that you're on right now. So it's meant to be a warning to you. But the announcement that is offered to you is that God's blessing is available. God's blessing can be experienced. It's being experienced here for these people. So God's blessing is available to you. Right now, not like in a year or five years when you get your act together and you earn God's blessing. That's not how it works. God's blessing is available to you right here, right now, today. And, and the change that God would bring in your life would be as dramatic, it will be as dramatic, as a three-year-long famine with just barren soil and destitution everywhere and all of a sudden rains pour down and you see all this new life grow up. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like to experience the blessing of God. It's described this way in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted at blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I can remember so clearly what it felt like for me before I gave my life to Jesus. My soul, to be honest with you, felt thirsty and dry. I was only 20 years old, but I was tired. I felt worn out. I felt exhausted inside. My life did feel like a famine. And yet, I, I remember with just as much clarity the feeling that I felt when I came to Christ and I finally just surrendered my life and I just trusted in Jesus and all of a sudden it was like refreshment coming into my life at the deepest recesses of my interior life. It was like being parched and drinking out of a fire hose. I mean, God just pours life into you and it flows everywhere. And it's amazing and it's available to you here today. We all have a choice to make. You can pursue judgment or you can pursue blessing from the hand of God. And that verse in Acts chapter 3 makes it really clear that the way to receive blessing and refreshment from God is through repentance. That's through making a break with how you've been living and who you've been living for, whether that's just yourself or other people or whatever. God is saying, repent, make a break with that and begin living your life for me and trusting in me and seeking your satisfaction and your delight in me. And the moment you do that, God says, I'll just, I'll just, I'll bring refreshing. I'll just open up the floodgates of heaven and just rain down life and blessing in your life. And again, I, I wonder if there's anyone here today that that speaks to you, that you're just, maybe you're even saying, I wonder if that could be true. That sounds amazing. I wonder if it could be true. There's a whole lot of us in this room that'll tell you what I'm telling you, which is it is true. And it doesn't mean your life will be perfect and it doesn't mean it'll be easy going forward from this day on, but it means that there will be deep felt refreshing in your soul and there will be resources in Christ that help you move forward in faith and hope 
from this day forward. I want to close today by just praying for those who perhaps do feel that they're in desperate need of God's blessing. And so family, can we pray together in closing? God, we are eternally grateful for your grace and for your goodness toward your people. God, we know that every single scripture and every single story we read in the Bible is meant to point us to the big story of the Bible, your redemption of us in Christ. And God, we can read stories like this and we can find ourselves in the text. And we're not just one person. We're, we're a lot of different characters in the text. In some regards and in some instances in our lives, we're Saul. We're the guilty ones of sin and our sin is impacting other people. In other instances, we're like the children of Saul here and the grandchildren of Saul here. Being, experiencing justice for things that we have done. And yet, for those of us that are in Christ... In the fullest sense, we're like Mephibosheth today. We're being passed over. We're being extended mercy and grace and forgiveness because of the sacrifice of someone else, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today we pray that you would fill us with hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And God, we do pray for any who have joined us today that have never, ever put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. God, we can do nothing to help them come to Jesus. We can do nothing to save them. But God, you can open their heart. You can draw them to yourself. And we pray that you've used and you will use this service and even this sermon today to bring them to life, to draw them to repentance, to help them today to make a break with how they've been living and who they've been living for. And to from this day forward, begin living for you, Jesus. And we pray that they would experience refreshing from the presence of God. So God, we pray for our friends here today that need Jesus. Would you give them faith? So God, we love you. We worship you. We honor you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, family, stand on your feet. And as you do, we're going to sing a final song about what Jesus has done for us and worship him in light of the great sacrifice that he's made for our salvation. So let's worship together.